Well, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us here at the Hudson Institute on this rainy Friday. Um, my name is Rebecca Heinrichs. I am a fellow here at Hudson Institute. Uh, I actually specialize, I, I write and, and, and comment on all a uh, pretty broad um, area of topics in national security and foreign policy, but I specialize in counterproliferation, um, missile defense, nukes, that sort of thing. My, and, you know, I also sort of dapple in, uh, you know, um, other sorts of WMD concerns, um, which has kept me sort of really plugged in on the Syria issue with Assad's use of chemical weapons. Um, but today, we're going to do something a little bit different here. I'm also a contributing editor of Providence Magazine, um, which is the other organization who's co-hosting this event with us today. Um, and, and with that, I'm going to introduce um, uh, Mark Lavecki on the end, and I'll move this direction. Um, Mark Lavecki is the managing editor of Providence Magazine and scholar of Christian ethics, warrant, and peace at the Institute on Religion and Democracy. Um, that does not do him justice, but that's all the introduction I'm going to provide so we can get going. And next to him, we have uh, Nina Shea, who is an international human rights lawyer for over 30 years. Nina Shea joined Hudson Institute as a senior fellow in November 2006, where she directs the Center for Religious Freedom. And um, like Mark, that does not do her justice, but um, we'll move on here to Mike. Uh, Michael Duran is a senior fellow here at Hudson Institute. Um, he specializes in Middle East security issues. Um, he has a new book out, and the name of your book? Ike's Gamble. Ike's. About Eisenhower in the Middle East. So you should check that out as well. Um, and what I'd like to do then after that, I'm going to I'm going to sort of frame the discussion a little bit here, provide a little bit of an introduction, and then I'm going to kick it off to my panelists, um, have a discussion for for a little while, and then hopefully leave enough time for you all to ask some questions that you can be thinking about um, at the at the very end of of our discussion. Um, after nearly six years, Syria, Syria remains locked in a bloody civil war while Iran and Russia continue to be President Bashir al-Assad's primary enablers. Assad's Syria offers Iran an important supply line to Hezbollah fighters in Lebanon. U.S. response to the Syrian civil war has been inconsistent. President Obama, of course, lacked a coherent strategy for dealing with Syria and infamously chose inaction after Assad used chemical weapons on his own people. His inaction had a cost, a high one. The Assad regime is responsible for at least two more cases after that. There are many more alleged cases um, of the use of chemical weapons, um, including weaponizing and using chlorine on the Syrian people. President Trump has made it clear that he intends to refocus U.S. efforts abroad and pursue a foreign policy focused primarily on America's interests. In his April 2016 speech on the campaign trail, then... Um, uh, Mr. Trump, uh, now President Trump, said, quote, America first will be the major and overriding theme of my administration, end quote. Again, from his foreign policy address, the president said our actions in the Middle East have been wrongheaded. He said, it all began with a dangerous idea that we could make Western democracies out of countries that had no experience or interests in becoming a Western democracy, end quote. But then the geopolitical dimensions, um, Oh, and then he went on to say that Iran would would uh, to would rush in and fill that power vacuum that existed um, if the United States didn't didn't do something in the region. Um, but of course, the political the geopolitical dimensions aren't the only ones the administration must grapple with now. 
There are also religious differences, sectarian differences within those religions in the region. The indecision and inaction are rather the, deci the decision not to act by the previous administration changed the balance in the region and solidified alliances um, that had not previously been as strong, especially between Russia and Iran. And this has had far-reaching effects on Sunni countries in the region as well. And then there are the dramatic humanitarian costs of this inaction. The war has taken the lives of hundreds of thousands of Syrians, I think up to 400,000 Syrians now. It has displaced millions, creating a refugee crisis that has been felt around the world. So, in light of the Trump administration's departure from the Obama foreign policy, I hope we can grapple with, if not solve, some of these complicated <laughs> issues. Um, and so with that, what I'd like to do is sort of, uh, right off the bat, I want to talk about this, this idea that sort of is brewing among some corners of, of, of Trump supporters. And that idea says that Syria is so hard and it's so complicated and it's so difficult to figure out who the moderates are, if there are any, and who the good guys are, um, that perhaps we should just let them deal with it, let the Russians deal with it, let the Iranians deal with it, and then um, after the dust settles, then, then we'll see where we are. Mike? Uh, well, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, what you just uh, described is how I understood the what I understood the Obama foreign policy to actually be. Um, that isn't the way that President Obama ever described it, but that's the effect of what they did. And um, I um, I uh, warmly describe that viewpoint as the Sarah Palin thesis. You remember she famously said that. Um, when asked uh, what to do about Syria, she said, let Allah sort them out. Uh, and that is basically, uh, President Obama never used that terminology, but that's basically what he did, just pulled America back. And then what happened was, uh, as, you, uh, as you stated, Russia and Iran filled the vacuum. Um, and I think that President Obama, again, he never said this, but my reading of his policy was that, um, was that he thought there was no problem for the United States in letting the Russians and the Iranians uh, um, uh, become the dominant force in, um, in Syria. Uh, I think it's a problem for the United States, that that is the, the, the central problem. Uh, and um, we, you know, when, uh, from day one of the Trump administration, um, the administration said that they, are, they put Iran on notice and they want to push back against Iran across the region. Well, Russia and Iran are in an alliance in, in Syria, certainly. I think it's an alliance across the whole Middle East, but it's certainly an alliance in, in Syria. So if you're pushing back against Iran, you're pushing back against, um, uh, against Russia. Um, and there's, a, there's another issue as well, and that's the problem with Syria, the problem with the, the, the fight against ISIS, um, is not the military problem. We, ISIS is uh, 30,000, probably less now, nasty guys with pickup trucks. Um, they're no match for the American military. The, the problem is the political problem, the problem of political order after the war, right? After, after the military defeat of ISIS, what, who, who wins the war? What, who, who establishes the new, um, the new order? Uh, and if we have the Russians and the Iranians establishing the new order, which is the way the thing is, the way President Obama set up the system when the, when the Trump administration came in, well, then we alienate all of the, uh, all of the major Sunni powers in the region, and we alienate the Sunnis on the ground. The whole 
Jihadistan from Baghdad to Aleppo is primarily Sunni Arab. Uh, and so the, the, the Obama administration aligned with, aligned with the Russians and the Iranians and aligned with the PYD, with the, with the Kurdish, um, with the Syrian Kurdish, uh, cousins or extension of the PKK in Turkey. Uh, so that combination of Iranians, Russians, and, and, and separatist Kurds alienated the Turks and alienated all, the, the, uh, all of the Sunnis. The only way we can bring stability to the area, which is what we want, I think that's what the, our, our goal should be, um, is to have Sunni Arab allies. So as long as we, uh, as long as we align with the Iranians and the Russians or just let the Iranians and the Russians um, um, expand their power, uh, we will not be able to find partners to stabilize the region. That's the, that's the fundamental strategic dilemma. Nina, would you like to add on to that? Yeah, my uh, focus throughout this has been, and the reason why I guess I'm on this panel is because um, my focus has been the genocide. And genocide of the minorities that was um, declared, designated officially by the Obama administration one year ago next Friday um, against the Yazidis, the Christians, and the Shia of these, this area uh, under ISIS. Um, and Basically, uh, Trump, uh, President Trump, as candidate and as president, has promised to keep his promises. And one major promise is, uh, on the foreign policy front, is to be um, <clears throat> uh, to eradicate radical Islamic terror from the face of the earth. That is an extremely tall order, and. Um, and if he does that, it will help these minorities. It's the sine qua non, in fact, to help these minorities. Uh, because, yes, it's defeating ISIS. And, in, and if you took, look at the whole region, you really can't separate Syria and Iraq too much. Um, the generals are saying within six weeks, Mosul is going to be uh, liberated from ISIS. Um, and that means Nineveh, where these minorities are from in Iraq, is going to be inhabitable, theoretically, again. But we're going to have a continuing problem. It's, it's a tall order because ISIS cells will live on. Also, al-Qaeda um, is expected to enlarge and benefit from those fighters who are disbanding now and fleeing Mosul now. Um, and... Um, there's also uh, the Iran um, encroachment that um, you know Mike has referred to, but in in a place like Iraq, you're already seeing checkpoints with in the Christian areas with um, uh, uh, Iranian-backed militias manning these checkpoints, and also Christians are reporting to us that. Uh, their lands are being bought. Um, they're being offered um, good prices for their former villages and homes and businesses by uh, Shia who have are flush with cash, presumably, they presume, from Iran. So um, th that Iran is part of this um, radical Islamic terror. It is a terror nation. Um, and uh, so I, I don't think that Trump is going to be satisfied with um, al-Baghdadi, the head of ISIS as the deer in the hood, like 
Obama was with uh, bin Laden. I think he realizes that, you know, bin Laden, I mean, um, Obama discussed, uh, dismissed, um, really, al-Qaeda and the whole terror threat with, um, you know, dismissing uh, ISIS as a JV team. And and we've seen how ISIS has really uh, brought about irreparable harm. I mean, this will never be put back together like it was in these small communities in particular are almost on the verge of a, a total destruction. And, um, but, so I think that, that, um, that Trump is going to do much more uh, to keep his promise. And, um, and I think that they will be serious about it. And I think that it will go uh, a long way uh, in trying to um, um, stabilize this region so that it can prosper. It's not a poor region. It's a rich region. And um, so I'll leave it at that. Um, I'm, I'm going to, to, to I'm going to let Mark have a chance here um, to respond if you'd like. Uh, do you want to add on to either of the other two, or if not, I've got another question for you. Ooh, that's enticing. Uh, no, I mean, just a pedantically obvious observation that, uh, you know, one of the lessons here is if you don't make the right decision early, uh, the negative consequences that result from that make making a right decision later that much more difficult, in part because other people step in, Russia or Iran. Um, and the longer you continue avoiding or not making intentionally the right decisions, then the negative consequences continue to barrel along through history, multiplying like bunnies and making any right thing incredibly difficult first to identify and second to do. Some things are obvious. You know, deer on a hood is a, is a good start. Ending genocide is a good start. But now, how? Right? You know, for reasonably intelligent people, and it's an intractable seeming issue. But. It's a great point, and I think, uh, um, you know, it, um, it, it should be recalled that the, President Obama did have more options before him before things really started to spiral out of control. And um, this idea that inaction is, um, you know, that that sort of an, an, uh, doesn't have its own problematic consequences, you know, it's just, it's just foolish because, as, as we've seen, is the choice to, to not do anything has made the, the situation far more complicated, has resulted in, 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 in genocide, frankly, in the region. Um, I want to ask about safe zones next. Um, but before I do that, I did want to ask um, back to my original question, which was this idea that there is some folks in the um, right now in the country that believe that the situation is so hard and so complicated that perhaps we should just leave it there. And Mike correctly, I, th- I agree with him, uh, made the point that that was in fact what the Obama administration had chosen to do. Um, but but Mark, can you explain why this idea though that um, that uh, nas- American national interests are um, completely uh, apart from and have nothing to do with the concerns, the humanitarian concerns, um, the ethical and moral concerns about, about what's happening in the region. Can you sort of explain for us a little bit why those, those things are not mutually exclusive? And in fact, why it is, you know, you know uh, President Trump is in fact concerned about um, the, the genocide of minorities in the region. He, he is concerned. He, he's, he was the first one, um, um, I believe, who came out in support of safe zones as it just at least something that perhaps would help give relief to some of those who are being persecuted in the region. Can you just help us think a little bit about why those things might not necessarily be mutually exclusive? Sure. Um, yeah, in part because it's in our own best interest to be concerned about morality. Right? And I think that's to remind more than it is to instruct. 
but it's something I think we often forget, and especially in the contemporary discourse, we traffic in binaries. You know, you've got realism and idealism. You've got compassion or security. You've got um, uh, interest or morality. And often our rhetoric renders these things sort of zero sums. You've got to be one of those things, and you've got to be it to the nth degree. Uh, but when you take a step back and you look at, at, at Trump's policies, Trump's positions, and simply the way that most people live, that's, that, that's really not what we think. Um, to get our bearings on this, I think it's helpful to look at, at the family, which is maybe the smallest microcosm of, of society. Uh, as a father, um, I have an uh, interest in securing the welfare of my children. They are my first earthly allegiance. Um, it is morally appropriate for me to be uh, interested in securing their vital interests, right? And sometimes that's going to even be at the expense of other people. You know, Mike, I love you, but if you and I are hiking with my children and you all fall into a pit of vipers, I'm going to pull my children out first, right? Um, that's just how that's going to go. Um, but I did say vital interests, right? And so that's a qualifier. Um, I have to be committed to provide their basic necessities, you know, uh, food, security, uh, shelter, Pokemon cards, you know, these sorts of things, right? And, and to, to be committed to that almost to the nth degree. Uh, but I'm less concerned about providing luxuries. And I'm even less concerned, almost utterly unconcerned about providing luxuries if my neighbor doesn't have enough to eat. Uh, and there are even certain circumstances, to complicate it even more, where I might jeopardize or be willing to jeopardize their basic necessities um, in order to come to the aid of others. So we don't act throughout our own lives as if these are zero-sum games. Um, we, do, we do both all the time. And there's much more to be said on that, but I'll, I'll leave it there for now. Great. Thank you. And I'm quite confident that should Mike fall into a pit of vibrant... <laughs> He'd probably lift them up to you. So I think he it would. would. Be, it would be a good team effort. I want to be I like would have, Mike. Until he said what he said, no. Change <laughs> <laughs> my view on that. Um, no, that's great. I, <clears throat> I think that I, I also think, do think that, the, again, that the Trump administration has sort of been a little bit misunderstood on this point. I think the America first, if you go back to, to not only his inauguration speech, but then some of his foreign policy speech, what he's trying to do is sort of re orient American foreign policy to think of it primarily as in the interests of the United States, where before we sort of had this idea that, um, you know, humanitarian concerns are this sort of nebulous idea of what it's right for the world sort of came first. Um, and he's trying to focus that and sort of um, instill a little bit more discipline in our foreign policy to, of course, think about humanitarian concerns, but as it overlapped and pertained to American national security interests. Um, I'd like to ask Mike, I, because another, th I, I, uh, I, I do think it's important, a lot of us here in think tanks talk about how obviously bad it would be that, that Iran has this, would have this proxy in Syria and Assad would stay, but can you just explain again why that is problematic? What is the problem with Iran for those people who are just now tuning into foreign policy, who are watching at home, who are just now getting engaged? Can you explain to us why that, in particular, why would, why would that be bad for the United States, for our national security interests? Sure. Uh, for, first of all, it, it isn't just Iran. It's Iran and Russia. Right? They are, uh, the, the two of them um, have a vital interest, each for their own reasons, in, the, um, uh, in propping up the Assad regime and uh, 
putting as much of uh, what we might even call the former Syria now back under the control of Assad as they um, as they can. Um, the the it's absolutely a vital interest of the of the two of them, and they have um, a division of labor, whereby the Iranians provide the troops on the ground, uh, and the Russians provide the the air cover, uh, and so. They have this vital interest, and they and they can't. Neither one can do it alone. They can only do it together. There's a among many of the um, uh, I don't know what to call it the grandees of foreign policy in Washington, the um, uh, the the biggest thinkers talking about you know former national security advisors and secretaries of state and so on. Um, there's a belief that you can separate uh, Iran and Russia. That's um, that's sort of the, uh, uh, a very common foreign policy big think that you hear, and I I think that that is uh, greatly exaggerated the ease with which they, they they exaggerate the ease with which you can separate those those two, um, so that's the starting point, and then the then the question is, how does one think about Iranian power and Russian power, um, and I am uh, firmly in the school um, that the Russians and the Iranians are out to undermine the United States in the Middle East. I want to establish a, um, I want to establish a foreign policy principle. And, and, and the principle is that those countries that in their day-to-day -day pronouncements loudly advertise their hostility to the United States or their enmity to the United States are enemies of the United States. Right? That's what I want. To, I want that to be the, our, the principle. Why, why do I say that? Because if you've dealt with the Iranians, I, I used to work in the Bush White House, the George W. Bush White House, and when you deal with the Iranians from the White House, you can see a very different picture than you see if you read the newspapers or listen to the pronouncements coming out of Tehran. Um, and and you, can, you can see it very clearly today when you look at the difference between what uh, the supreme leader says about America as opposed to what, what Zarif, the foreign minister, says about, uh, about America. You know, Zarif is writing op-eds in, in the New York Times now saying, Iran is your, is your counterterrorism partner. We can work together against ISIS and, and, and so on. When I was in the White House, they weren't saying that openly, but that was the back-channel message. Assad does the same thing. Assad is very good about sending messages through the CIA and, uh, and, uh, um, and, and elsewhere that says, we understand each other. Rebecca, you, 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 you have your interests, I have my interests. You have your hardliners, I have my hardliners. We, publicly, I'm going to have to say some nasty things about you, but behind the scenes we can do a deal. And uh, there's a certain kind of American, uh, pragmatic, business-oriented, and so on, that really responds to that, uh, to that rhetoric, right? And says, oh, this is a guy I can work with. Um, but they're playing us. They, they will pocket. We, they understand they're the weaker parties compared to us. Uh, a shift in our policy can, you know, a minor shift in our policy can really harm them significantly. Um, and so they mollify us by sending these back-channel messages when the goal of their policy is to undermine us and to undermine our allies. And so uh, that, that's, why, that's why we don't want them there. The second reason is that, as I said, it's the sort of demographic region, uh, uh, reason. As long as we are either turning a blind eye to them or in an align, a tacit alignment with them, we are alienating all of our traditional allies in the region. That includes Turkey, that includes Saudi Arabia, that includes Israel, and that includes the, the elements on the ground that we need in order to, 
to bring order to the region. So if you start with the principle, which I assume is what America first means, right? What does America first mean in the Middle East? Who knows? We have to figure that out, right? We don't know, we don't have an agreement about what the American interest is. But if it means anything, I think it means we're not going to have another George W. Bush style invasion of a Middle Eastern country, right? We're going to hang back a little bit, we're going to work through others. So the question then becomes, who are the allies on the ground that if they don't share all of our interests, at least we can work with and live with, and will create an order that is not threatening to us. And that means our traditional allies, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Israel, and so on. Those are the choices we have. So we either go with Iran and Russia, or we go with the traditional allies. I say let's go with the traditional allies. As long as we're aligning with Iran and Russia, we don't get the traditional allies. Nina, that brings me to you. Can you explain to us some of the, how will that then, based on what Mike just said, affect some of these minority groups that you've been tracking and following? Well, you know, I think that we should be clear that Iran is no friend to the religious other. It is one of the worst countries in the world. It's on the country of particular concern shortlist of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom and the State Department as being, you know, one of the worst violators of religious freedom. Just this week, it arrested two more, a mother and a son who recently converted to Catholicism. And there's been lots of arrests of Christians and, you know, Sunnis and others, even Ayatollahs who disagree with the regime, are languishing in prison and being tortured for it, if not outright killed. So, you know, Iran is a terrible violator of religious freedom, a persecutor. It is not to be trusted, as Mike said, with the safeguard of anyone who doesn't agree with them. And that includes the small minorities. And, you know, there's this, you raised the safe zone idea at the outset, and that has been talked about and continues to be talked about. And that can be a solution, maybe a high cost to it, but it can be a solution for the, particularly the Sunni refugees from Syria, who we've seen going in great numbers to Europe. It may be a solution for them. I don't think it's going to be a solution for the small minorities. Those safe zones will very quickly become like the UN refugee camps, where no Christian or Yazidi dare enter them, because they are really dens of persecution inside. The persecution follows them into those places. So I don't think that minorities are going to benefit from that. And they may find some protection in the south of the country. You know, there's certainly going to be a lot less, a lot fewer minorities when it's over. But I think that they will look to Assad for protection. And they are very, many of them are very desperate that they not be handed over to, that the country not be delivered over to a Sunni government that will, that might quickly turn into some kind of Islamist regime like we saw in Egypt. Great. 
And I'm going to come back, and since you mentioned, brought up this, I brought up the safe zones, and then you touched upon it a little bit. Mike, did you even talk about that just a little bit about the the, the, the safe zones? The idea of safe zones um, as at least part of a larger package of solutions. For well, the well, that's that's the key. It, it, it's not a solution. It's a it's it has to be part of something larger um, because it it's the beginning of an idea of a strategic idea, but it, but but it's not the end um, because first of all, the question is um, who's going to police the safe zone. Um, and, and with what tools. Uh, so if we do it with the Jordanians in the south and the Turks in the north, perhaps, um, well, first of all, where is it going to be, right? Uh, what effect is the safe zone in the north going to have on the Turkish-Kurdish balance? Who's going to police it? How are you going to create an order inside the, 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 the safe zone? So you're talking about a significant, if you want to uh, have control over it, you're talking about a significant application of America, direct American force and, and, and Americans. Uh, or working through proxies that um, that we that have their own agenda that we may or may not we may or may not agree with, um, and then what are you going to do to the counter response to the safe zones? Because safe zones policed by U.S. air power and maybe some special forces on the ground and so forth in cooperation with others, um, that is a great American muscle movement, uh, and that will be read by the Iranians and the Russians as a muscle movement. Uh, and they will respond to it. So suppose uh, the, the the Russian and Iranian answer to all their problems in Syria has been to wipe out cities and push populations around and uh, and uh, uh, and change the demography. What if they start pushing refugees into the safe zone uh, aggressively? I'm talking about you know moving people out violently and in order to disrupt the safe zone. What if they create uh, uh, what if Al Qaeda, ISIS, and uh, the Iranians and the Russians start creating? Uh, sleeper cells in the in the safe zones to 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 disrupt them. How are we going to respond to that? So, the, in order to in order to police the the actual safe zone, you have to be ready to impose costs on the Iranians and Russians if they take any step that um, uh, that threatens your that that threatens your policy. So you're you're immediately in a competition with the Iranians and the Russians, and you have to be willing to win the competition ladder. That requires a very significant American uh, force package in the region and a posture to tell them that this is the case. And, and just one last thought. The, the Iranians and Russians are not going to respond to the safe zones only where the safe zones exist. There's a, from, from, from the, the Iranians are building a belt of allies from Tehran to Beirut. And and they're working elsewhere in Saudi Arabia, in um, in um, in Yemen, uh, for example. Um, so if our action in Syria is seen as a threat to the Iranian position, and it will be, the Iranians could act anywhere along. It's one strategic uh, theater, uh, and they could act anywhere. They could flood the green zone in Baghdad with uh, with, uh, with 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 Iraqi Shiite militiamen. Uh, and so on. So you have to be willing to act throughout the whole theater. That means we're, we're in a serious competition with the Iranians and Russians, and we have to gear up accordingly. Um, Mark, I did want to ask you, um, Nina brought up the problem, you know, that we, Mike explained what some of the benefit might be um, for safe zones, that, of course, not as a solution, but as a, a short-term fix. And then Nina brought up some of the problems with that, especially for minorities. 
Um, you know, I, I don't want to. I don't want to labor labor this point too long about the the refugee crisis, and that's a a big um, controversial subject here in the United States. But you have written about this somewhat a little bit about the refugees, etc. And can you um, can you explain? your position just as part of, of what the United States must do for the region, just relief for the, the refugees that the, that the conflict has caused, and what would be your sort of initial um, thoughts on, on what to do about that now? Just Easy question, right? Um, I believe I would, say, I, I would just say, you know, should they stay there? Should we right. find a solution for them somewhere in the Middle East right. um, as opposed to looking for a solution to bring them here? Sure, and you know this. This gets back to the question of compassion versus security. That a lot of people like to, to to say. If you bring people in, it's a threat to our security, so we don't bring them in. Others say, well, if you don't bring them in, you're not demonstrating any sort of compassion. Um, we've demonstrated over the years that there's all sorts of ways of being compassionate um, in the region itself. Right? I mean, how many billions of dollars? At least at the end of 2015, it was a billion dollars. I think we had already spent on refugee camps, and I'm not saying these are wonderful places to raise a family, um, but the conditions can be made better to something that approximates um, you know, security and, and order and all of that. Um, talking to people who have talked to people in the region, uh, you know, a lot of people are convinced that the Christians want to stay, at least overwhelmingly so, uh, and that's a hard ask, but if people are willing to stay, then it seems to me that it's ideal that they do stay. Uh, you know, I have, a, I have a hard time getting along with just myself, right? Um, you start to add to that company, and it becomes even more difficult to get along. Conflict happens. So it seems that it's, it's good to learn to, to live outside yourself, to be empathetic with other people, to learn to be open-minded and, and in, in certain ways broadly tolerant. Uh, and you're not going to probably learn that uh, in the Middle East if you chase out all the minor, minorities and the people with whom you disagree. Uh, and then that doesn't seem to be good, not just for those who have been chased out, but it doesn't seem to me to be good for the people who remain, um, to, to stay parochial, to stay you know, incredibly sectarian, um, is destabilizing internally, and it, it makes for bad neighbors externally. So yes, they should stay. Then the question becomes, ideally, then the question becomes, how, how do they stay? You know, part of the, the answer to that is wrapped up in whether or not Syria and Iraq are, or ever have been, or can be real states. And when you look at the facts on the ground, uh, is the answer to that seems to point in the direction of, well, no, probably not. Uh, so then what does that mean? And can you have a decentralized, um, semi-autonomous region uh, where you can try to work some of that out? Now, and this is a real question. Two years ago, I was doing a dissertation, um, endeavoring to embark upon a career of general irrelevance to everybody else. Then I was hired to run a journal that intersects Christian intellectual tradition with national security. And so I played two years of catch up and trying to be practical. So one of my questions uh, for the panel, if I may ask a question, is are safe zones the same thing as these as uh, decentralized local governments, you know, based on, on the Dayton Accords? We've had a number of people write for us saying, oh, Bosnia is a great example of what might be able to happen. Um, in some of these areas on the end of the plane, et cetera. Are we talking about the same thing when we talk about safe zones versus these kinds of semi-autonomous, decentralized zones, which even the Iraqi PM seems to think, you know, if the center doesn't hold, you either uh, decentralize or you disintegrate. Is, is that the same thing? Is that something different in your minds? Is that more viable, less viable, equally? So? Yeah, go Nina. Yeah, sure. 
Yeah, that's, you know, an excellent question because these terms are used mm. interchangeably. Like safe haven is another form right. of describing this. And I think what the international community seems to think about Syria is that safe zones will be for those refugees flowing to Europe. And those refugees are mostly Sunnis. So I think that's who those safe zones will be in Syria. I don't think that the minorities and the others who are not, Shia or Alawites, will be able to enter them and live there um, just because they can't do it in their cities now. And um, in Iraq, it's somewhat different. The Nineveh Plain was the area where these, um, all the minorities had been flushed into over the years. And so you have the Christians, the Yazidis, the Turkmen, the Shabak, all these uh, populations and uh, that were either ethnic or religious minorities or both. And I think that uh, there's a challenge now to keep that safe. It's an, a plain, it's a natural battlefield. It has no natural defenses. Um, so it's, it needs protection and they really don't have their own militaries to do it, to do the job. So, um, but, you know, you talked about compassion in addition to defense, which may come, which may flow from a continuing U.S. military presence to keep down ISIS, to keep down um, uh, al-Qaeda and, and keep out the Iranians, um, that they may get that, uh, you know, be collateral uh, defense from that. But then they need, uh, yes, they need compassion. They need help, and they've needed help all along. And these minorities have not gotten, in some cases, any UN aid. And um, they have not been able to avail themselves of the camps, for example. As I mentioned, they, they have not gotten um, the, the uh, Chaldean Catholic Church, which oversees all the camps in the Erbil region in Kurdistan, where most of the Iraqi Christians fled. Uh, from ISIS, the genocide survivors fled to, have testified to U.S. Congress this past fall that they have not received one cent in aid from the U.N. High Commissioner for Refugees since ISIS entered, not one cent. They received some tarps at the beginning. And this was testimony before Congress. Um, Trump has to fix this. Uh, that's not compassionate. We seem to think, you know, we've given, the United States has given $1.1 billion in humanitarian aid to the UNHCR for Iraq's displaced since 2014. And none of that has reached most of the Christians and some of the Yazidis that are being cared for in the Erbil region. And then we have the reconstruction uh uh, aid coming up as an issue. Um, ISIS may be gone in six weeks from the, that particular area, and reconstruction is already being planned. Uh, there are no UN planned distribution centers for this kind of reconstruction aid in the Christian areas of Nineveh. There's, they're in Mosul, um, where the Christians are, and Yazidis are not. There's one planned for, there's 20 uh, reconstruction aid distribution centers planned by the UN Development Program. Uh, none of them are in the Christian areas. And when a friend of mine asked recently this week, in fact, to the USAID, if um, the minorities, the NGOs could attend, if, if the U US could ask the UNDP to uh, call for a meeting on reconstruction with these NGOs in this area of Nineveh, um, the USAID pushed back and said, no, 
that's not the role of the United States to ask the UN. These are professionals that are doing their job, and we can't intervene, even though the U.S. supplies 25% of the budget under the UN Charter. We we uh, we supply 25% of the aid that they're distributing. So I think um, the Trump administration, whether it wants to or not, is going to have to uh, really tend to this. Um, I, I certainly hope they do, and I'll be pressing for it. Thanks, Nina. That um, very helpful in laying out some of the um, specific challenges there. I want to go back to Mike here and talk a little bit about, though, um, before we turn it over to the audience. One of the criticisms um, in General Mattis, now Secretary of Defense Mattis, um, I think has been very good at explaining is that we haven't really had one of his complaints against the previous administration um, was that there, there really wasn't an end state that was planned or thought through. And so this sort of, you know, being led around by just sort of just how events were, were unfolding was, was a really major problem. We were simply just reacting rather than directing events in the region. And, and, and it's, it's my read that that's going to change. And so um, we're going to have to navigate all of these problems, but still we're going to have to determine what is the end state. And you touched on that. I mean, this isn't just going to be, it's not, it's not going to be solved militarily, although there, there might be, well, there will be a military piece to this. There needs to be a political solution. We need to figure out who it is that we want to govern in the end and how, and how that's going to work out. And um, I, I remember uh, I was at this, this private roundtable discussion with some of our allies um, in the region right after Assad had used chemical weapons and when President Obama was sort of dithering on whether or not we were going to actually respond to that, you know, action of crossing the red line that he had drawn. And one of our um, allies in the region just, he said, he, he was very frustrated and threw up his hands and said, it, I, it doesn't matter what the United States decides to do, we just need to know what it is that we want to do and we'll get behind you. Um, and, and it was sort of struck me as, you know, it wasn't even this strong opinion about what needs to happen, but um, our allies really wanted strong American leadership in determining what the end result was going to be in the region. So even though we have all of this confusing, um, um, you know, parts and components to this, and there is inevitably going to be just the fog of war, not knowing, going into this, how do we then decide? I mean, you brought up, you know, just as a, a matter of strategy, we have to have uh, allies involved in coming up with a solution. But how do we do anything? How do we, how do we go in there without actually coming up with a grand strategy and determining what it is the solution that we want? Or should we expect in the months to come, you know, that the administration will determine that? This is who we want to govern. This is the political solution. And then work from the military requirements, et cetera, and work from there. Um, the whole the whole question of it's, it's a vexed question the end state um, uh, because um, um, as I said before you know we're we're, we're not going to put um, 150 thousand men on the ground um, uh, so that we can determine by ourselves uh, you know through our own use of force what it is we want to build um, we're going to have to work with others so. I, I would I would call for an intermediate uh, uh, goal, which is to put together the coalition that could possibly help you um, determine what the end state is, and that 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 to me is the, coming up with the coming up with the trusted partners who are willing to work with you, and then and then negotiating with them as you go along. That's that's the that's the key thing. We have a we have a pseudo coalition at the moment. The 60, I can't remember how many we have, 65, 64, 63, 68, 68, 68, 68 allies 
right? That's, you know, when the United States announces that it has a major, uh, it's going to to, uh, engage in a major project, then a lot of people will come and say, we want to help. Um, you'll always get people who want to help and who will join up for all kinds of different reasons and different agendas than actually helping you achieve the thing it is that you want to achieve. And so that's why we've had 68, 65, 63 uh, partners fighting 30,000 nasty guys with pickup trucks for well over a year, and, and we still have no solution in sight because they're they're, they don't really want to do the job. Um, and, and the reason is, um, I, at the risk of repeating myself, they, we are the only power on Earth that thinks the destruction of ISIS is the number one priority in the Middle East. Everybody else is asking themselves, what new order is going to replace the, the ISIS order? Is it going to work to my advantage or, or, or not? And what everybody sees is that the United States is ushering in an Iranian-Russian order, right? Uh, until we change that picture... And, and show everybody in the region that that is not the order we're going to usher in, we're not going to get a lot of cooperation from, every, from, from everybody. So and the, one conclusion I would draw from that, um, let's, let's drop the notion that defeating ISIS is our grand strategic goal in, in the region. Our grand strategic goal in the region is to build a new order in the region. To build a new order in the region, we need partners, once we have the, once we have the, to get the partners, we have to show that we're willing to compete with the Iranians and the Russians. That doesn't need that, and 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 that means we're also hostile to the Assad regime. Um, it doesn't mean we have to say regime change in Syria tomorrow. It doesn't mean we have to drive the Russians all the way out of the region. So we we have to show that we're competing with them. We're not partners, and we want to and we want to create an order that is favorable, or at least acceptable to our major partners in the region. That's right. I, that also reminds me, I, um, in a conversation with one of our Eastern European allies, you know, I asked about what the concern was about ISIS. They said, well, we care about ISIS to the extent the United States wants us to care about ISIS. Well, <laughs> but what they really, truly, and, and what she really meant was, we're very concerned about Russia. We're very concerned about Russia in the region. And so, you know, um, it's not that it isn't a concern, but certainly for them, it's, it's just not the alligator closest to the boat. Could I, 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 I actually have to revise what I said sure. now. France wants to see an early, France wants to see an early defeat of ISIS. I think the United States, the, the American public expects an early defeat of ISIS, right? Sure. And so, um, uh, so that is, that's President Trump's, it was his, his campaign promise. That's gotta happen. So I, I didn't mean to suggest that we shouldn't, uh, that it shouldn't be an urgent priority to actually defeat ISIS. But while we're doing that, you know, as, as Mark mentioned, we've been making little tactical adjustments that have real strategic implications down the line that we have only vaguely been aware of. We need to be aware of the larger strategic context while we're taking care of this urgent problem. That's a great point. That's a great point. We'll, we'll take in there, too. Um, Nina, did you? I, I wanted to give you an opportunity too, since we are talking about short-term, so you know, short-term fixes and then larger, longer-term solutions for the region. I thought you made a wonderful point in, in a conversation that you and I had recently about. We still have this ideological undercurrent that that needs to be addressed in some way. Um, perhaps the most difficult piece of this, but it has to be part of it. It has to be something that we deal with 
um, the idea of uh, the Islamic radicalism in, in the region. Did you want to speak to that just a, just a little bit? Um, just want to oh, give you the, the opportunity. yeah, the, 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 there's um, the issue of terror, which has a military solution. Um, and we see that with ISIS or Al-Qaeda. But there's the issue of radicalization so that we're not always just reacting militarily to a situation that is going to uh, cost you know, hundreds of thousands of lives or wipe out entire uh, 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 cultures. Um, and who are a threat to us as well. And that's the other part of it, Mike, that one reason why we should care about ISIS is because they are plotting against us. Um, but uh, so the radicalization, um, we're seeing it now in um, Iraq, the, the, the product of it, with these children that have been indoctrinated with a radical uh, version of Islam for the last two and a half years. And this week, uh, they found uh, the troops, uh, Iraqi troops, found letters of schoolboys in a ISIS um, military barracks. These were uh, the Martyrs Brigade of ISIS. They were 13, 14, 15-year-old kids. And they went on to become suicide bombers, and they found the letters that they left for their parents. Actually, they were meant to be sent to their parents, but they never were, so they found them in the box. Um, and the kids are talking about how one boy, um, 15 years old from West Mosul, is telling, writing to his parents that he has joined ISIS, he's run away and joined ISIS because they refused to let him um, be married off, and he now wants to um, find the 72 virgins. And um, so this is the kind of indoctrination that these kids have gotten, and they're still around. Um, the New York Times, um, if it's to be believed, uh, said that uh, ISIS was using Saudi Arabian textbooks at the beginning in Mosul. And certainly those textbooks have been a concern of mine. I've done some three reviews, three or four reviews of them over the years since 9-11. And they um, teach things like um, the blood of a Christian can be spilled and treasure taken unless they have a protection contract with the Muslim, or that the uh, Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is a fabricated um, text, uh, is historical fact, you know, that is an anti-Semitic uh, tract that uh, Jews are plotting to take over the world, is historical fact. It really happened, and um, these are real protocols. So, um, I mean, this has to stop. This kind of, uh, this, this is uh, some of our intelligence heads. I remember Jim Woolsey told me, you know, that this is kindling for um, bin Laden's match um, back at, after 9-11. It's that this, this kind of indoctrination um, allows um, a good leader, I mean, an effective leader like al-Baghdadi of ISIS to come in and to, um, and to make these kids become suicide bombers that threaten everybody. In Nigeria, we're seeing 13-year-old girls becoming suicide bombers. And when they, the reports I'm getting is that when you see a, a strange 13-year-old girl walking into the market, they will start, they'll just kill her. Either the, the soldiers will, will or the, the mobs will just go after her because it's, it's happened so many times. So, um, you know, that is one example 
of something that really uh, needs to be tackled, I think. I don't think we can continue to have a military response for endless wars um, at, because every time we stamp out um, you know, al-Qaeda or ISIS in one part, it is spreading elsewhere. And right now it's spreading throughout Africa, in Western Africa, in Mali and beyond, in um, Nigeria. And uh, these are uh, it's extremely destabilizing and, um, and costing many, many lives um, of, the, of the population. I think that's it's an important point just to keep in mind that that there is a, and I do think that the Trump administration, um, you know, had made a, has made a major departure from the Obama administration, at least in even recognizing and calling out the fact that there is an ideological undercurrent that is the motivating, um, that's that's what's driving. These aren't um, just sui generis. Uh, terror groups popping up. Exactly. And then, of course, that, that, that must be considered as we think about refugee policy and that sort of thing as well. Um, with that, I would like to take some questions from the audience, um, if there are some ready. I think somebody will be here with a microphone. Get the Right there in the corner. Mm-hmm. You could just state your name and where you're from. That would be really helpful. Thank you. Mary Carrick. Um, Nobody has mentioned that under Assad, every single religious minority is protected. And if you get rid of him, what are you, go- you, what are you going to get? We've done this in, in Iraq, and we did it in Libya, and they're basket cases. Libya doesn't even have a functioning government right now. And I, I can't, you know, okay, maybe Iran is not really religiously tolerant, but it has the second largest Jewish community in the Middle East. They're allowed to practice their religion. Saudi Arabia, you will have your head chopped off if you wear a cross. If, you, if a woman is raped, they, 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 they kill them. So I, I don't know why there is this idea that Saudi Arabia is this wonderful place. And Turkey is not going very well with this Erdogan guy, because under Ataturk, they were supposed to be secularized, and he's bringing back all these very Islamic tendencies, which is not going to probably end up very well. Thank you for your question. I think Nina actually did address that a little bit. She said that um, many of the minorities actually have looked towards Assad for protection. And so, Nina, did you want to just, and then Mike, if you wanted to. You know, I think the end of the day, the best we could hope for is um, uh, regions that are autonomous to some extent that are ethno-religiously divided. And so you're going to not have, uh, you know, a mix. You're going to have the pluralism because this is not the age of secular uh, secularism in the Middle East. We're not seeing, uh, you know, a democratic secular leader rising. So um, you're going to have this vicious suppression of the religious other or the ethnic other. Uh, so the the Assad regime is not a benign element in the Middle East. Um, You've got, uh, Rebecca said, 400,000. I see other estimates that say 500,000 people killed in the war. Uh, Most of those people killed are killed by the Assad regime, the Russians and the Iranians. Um, They have destroyed uh, Sunni cities outright, uh, just obliterated them. So it's hard for me to look at the Russian-Iranian-Assad complex um, as um, good for humanity in any way. The fact that there's a, a handful of Jews in Tehran that are not being murdered doesn't make me feel good about what the Iranians are doing in, uh, 
uh, are doing in um, in the wider Middle East. So that's just with regard to the humanitarian, uh, from the humanitarian point of view. Um, that driving that the that from the, that's from from the point of view of the murder machine. Assad, the Iranians, and the Russians have displaced 10 million people or more. That's half the population of Syria. Those people are not going back to their homes. Some of those people have been driven into refugee camps in in, um, in uh, Jordan and Turkey and Lebanon and and and, and greatly. Um, um, uh, greatly destabilized the entire neighborhood. Those people are going to be in those camps for decades. So we are going to have a ring of hatred in the region as a result of the uh, what the Assad what the Assad regime did. Hundreds of thousands have been pushed into Europe, which has which has greatly complicated the politics of the European Union and created opportunities for the Russians to uh, 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 for the Russians to. Um, uh, uh, to um, uh, uh, destabilize um, the European Union. Uh, so these are these are humanitarian issues. These are um, strategic issues. These are moral issues. Um, and then we add to the fact, as I mentioned to begin with, that Iran is out to undermine the United States in the Middle East. Iran has the greatest capabilities of any of any in, of any enemy of the United States in the region. Saudi Arabia does not have a Quds force. Saudi Arabia does not have a Revolutionary Guard. Saudi Arabia is not creating militias in surrounding countries that are holding the, that are that are destabilizing those countries, murdering people, and holding uh, and holding the governments of those countries hostage, like Iran is doing in Lebanon, like Iran is doing in uh, in Yemen, like Iran is doing in, in, in Iraq. Um, so I think it, uh, I, to, 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 to be, um, to, to sum it all up in one word, I think to say that some Christians out of no other choice, but uh, uh, have no choice whatsoever, but to, uh, but to bend to the will of the Assad regime means that somehow we should be, we should look uh, with favor upon it is is very narrow-minded, very short-sighted. Uh, sure, we're going to go to the, to the. I'm sorry, sir, to the lady behind you first, and then you, and then we'll come over here, and that might be enough, I think. Thank you so much uh, for this important discussion. I just want to start. Uh, first of all, my name is Heidi Buzo. I'm a journalist here in Washington, and I want to disagree um, with the lady in the back. Um, <clears throat> You know, I'm a Syrian Kurdish um, secular person, and I lived in Syria for years. And I want to point out to one thing, and then I'm going to move out to another point, if that's okay, and just ask a question. You know, we've witnessed, uh, as Kurds, we've been oppressed by the Assad regime. We witnessed um, the Assad regime supporting al-Qaeda in Iraq with the Iranian regime. We saw the, the, the basically turning a blind eye on ISIS, if not helping ISIS in the beginning. <clears throat> releasing Mujahideen from prisons while torturing um, journalists and Christians to death in the Assad regime prisons. I mean, those are cases that I follow closely. And at the same time, you know, when we talk about the persecution of minority, which is very important, and the genocide that happened with the Yazidis, which are Kurds as well, you know, it's heartbreaking, but at the same time, how can we can address this if we have a majority of the Arab Sunnis being slaughtered and, 
basically we don't want to treat that, which was happening by the Assad regime. And to, to protect only the minority, it just doesn't work if it's not in, in, as a part of a bigger solution for just everybody. Another point I just want to talk about, which is, you know, the, the minority in Syria basically being in control, I think this is another basically source of the, the situation we have today because the Alawite regime by Assad is a minority, you know, ruling the majority, which is only oppressed the majority and actually helped them get radicalized by building only mosques, no schools, uh, not allowing churches to be built, and at the same time, you know, supporting al-Qaeda in Syria and in Iraq with the Iranian regime. So how could we can address this problem? I mean, we're talking about a, a regime that is a, a, a source for what we see today in terms of radicalization and terrorism. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Very well stated. I, I, does anybody want to, to add to that or simply? Can I say one sentence? Go for it. And I, I don't want to hog the podium, but um, just in, in response to the, the, the earlier question, I, I would say that toppling the Assad regime tomorrow is, would be unwise for the reasons that the, the, that the questioner stated. Um, but we have to show everyone else in the region that we are going to contain it and that we are going to co compete with its Russian and Iranian backers. I would agree with that as well. And I would also say, I mean, that Nina's points, too, are well taken. Your question, is, your question is also well taken. That's why we haven't done so at this, you know, it's why the Trump administration didn't come in and immediately take out Assad. We've got to, we've got to navigate some of these problems. But um, anyway, thank you so much for your statement and for being here, uh, sir. Yes. Thank you. My name is Gerald Heng. I come from Massachusetts, Boston. Um, I think there's general agreement with Mr. Doran's uh, proposition that ISIS is the current world problem because they have violated every rule in the book. And at the same time, it is not only acceptable here that they are the number one problem, but also worldwide. Uh, it sort of reminds me of the communist insurgency in Malaysia where the British had to fight the communist guerrillas but they fight communist guerrilla successfully because they had a political they had a political infrastructure after that and so the local people took over the government and communism was dead within 12 years whereas Uncle Sam was not so good uh, in its uh, Vietnam War, Senator Fulbright said, look, geopolitically, we shouldn't be there. And they tried to get the local people to succeed after the military warfare in Vietnam. But the, the local leadership was wholly Roman Catholic. So they didn't win. They didn't win. So what I'm, I'm, I'm asking is this from the distinguished panelists, is there a psychological, political, infrastructure warfare against ISIS from, from Uncle Sam's uh, area? Thank you for your question, sir. I, I think Nina did address the need for one, certainly. Well, I think ISIS is going to be history pretty soon, at least as a governing body. The Islamic State will be gone 
I don't think there's anything, any doubt about that. Mike said that we have the capability of doing it. And um, I think uh, Mr. Trump, President Trump has the desire. He's one of his promises. So um, the question is then what comes next? And, you know, that's sort of what we've been discussing. It's not one threat that we face or that they face. Um, there's the um, Iran uh, that's filling a vacuum there that will is beginning to fill. I, I see it very clearly in Nineveh, where they are uh, have the militias there already planted there, and they're working with the local Shiite population there, and uh, to empower them. Uh, at the same time that other minorities that used to be there are being driven out or can't return. Radio, TV, Well, it's, well, it's, they're, they're, Iran is sending money um, to uh, to empower them, and so uh, and the and military. So uh, and then there's Al Qaeda that's going to be reforming uh, in that region again to uh, fill a vacuum for the Sunni population. So it's a, I, you know, I think that I don't think the Trump administration wants to keep troops there. But I think they'll have to. I think they'll find they'll have to. And then the question becomes what to do about ISIS in the Sinai or um, its affiliates in Nigeria and elsewhere. So. We are not going to win because we got all the drones. Well, uh, we, we definitely have military might. And um, yeah, but it's going to be, you know, some people say intergenerational. It takes a long time. It's the recruitment that I'm worried about. Right. Yes, yes. Well, that's what I was talking about, radicalization. It's that we do have to have a counter-radicalization uh, plan. And just to dovetail onto that, you know, how can, we, how can we recruit or encourage moderate Muslim allies to do some of that work? Because it's not likely to come um, outside of that community um, as much. Uh, so what role, you know, General Petraeus testifying before Congress a couple weeks ago said number of, one of our number one assets are the millions of moderate Muslims who can be a counter voice to this kind of radicalization. Because a dead terrorist is simply one who's been defeated, not undone. And it's much better to prevent than to, to kill, kill if necessary. But. There's a question over here. Thank you, Steve Landing, Manchester Trade. I am very frustrated because I hear people coming up with plans, with solutions for an area which does not have an immediate solution. And we have a great habit of eating our allies, as we always say. Saudi Arabia has problems, but it also has 54% of its students are women. There's all kinds of rights, respect for students, not the ones maybe that we like in the rest, but they do have special lines. I mean, there's the things they do. They could be an ally, but then you go up on the hill and everybody's out to get Saudi Arabia and so on for this reason or that reason and so on. The, the, they want to put the, they want to put the refugee ban on. We all know about 9-11. I don't want to go there. But every, so when you talk about who our allies are going to be, I don't know who they are exactly and so on. I think the question, and then when you keep talking about like the red line, the red line worked. Mr. Uh, Mr. Um, President, Os President Osama, my life. Uh, but the but the president knew Obama knew that we didn't have the military might to do it. He knew they used poison gas. He got the Russians to get it out. They did a little bit more, but they haven't done much. I don't know how much. I don't know the intelligence. I haven't done much. He got it out. He did it within his very limited power of a country 
doesn't want to go there. So the real question I'm asking you all is to say, yeah, we know the long-term trends is for secularism. It makes sense. And this young people, and we all know about the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the cell phones that we wouldn't use and the social media, a lot of the jazz. But what is the solution? How do we not try to choose sides, but how do we reach out to the, quote, young people, Everybody lives in a village. How do we go there? Because I don't think the way we're going to do it is by either liking Mr. Assad or not. Because I think you were very clear. We can't get rid of him. We may not like him. Maybe it was a mistake to say that our real goal was to get rid of him. That's all past. But I. But is there some kind of, and I think this is the question you were asking as far as Malaysia goes, is there some kind of a message not to solve the problem immediately, but we can be on the trend to getting the problem solved? Thank you. I'm going to take the moderator's prerogative just for a moment here and touch and just to respond to one one particular point you made, which was that that after Assad crossed President Obama's red line, and actually he had he had used chemical weapons multiple times whenever the red line was officially announced to have been crossed, it had already had been crossed. Um, but then we did come up the the president President Obama did come up with this solution. Actually, it was Putin's idea to go in and work with the United States to send in the OPCW to remove chemical weapons from, from Syria. The OPCW is not like the IAEA. The OPCW is there at the invitation of the nation's leader. That was Assad. So Assad showed the OPCW which chemical, which, which weapons he was, he was happy to, to give up. Um, which means the chemical weapons he was not happy to give up are still there. It also means that subsequently he weaponized uh, chlorine, which was not covered by, by the deal because it can be used in, in other things, you know, cleaning, you know, keeping your swimming pool clean, et cetera, et cetera, it's common use. So it has been weaponized and used at least twice to have been officially known by the Assad regime, um, we believe, because they're the ones with the helicopters and the dropping barrel bombs on, on people. Um, and of course, chemical, uh, the, the weaponization of chlorine is especially um, awful to children and to the elderly. It is a terror weapon. So, you know, it, that point I couldn't let slide because it, it, it's, it isn't, I mean, what, what President Obama did is he was backed into a corner because he realized he didn't have a plan or a strategy and so Congress wouldn't authorize use, the use of force and to, to, to go and enforce that red line. Um, so that, that's where we are today with Assad in that deal. Um, but did anybody else want to address the rest of the question that he had asked? Um, or Just an observation. There is no solution. Uh, we're not going to have a solution to the Middle East, to, to, the, to, to the conflicts. The question is, how do we manage the chaos better? Um, and then I would just return to what I said. We have to figure out who our, who our allies are and who they aren't. And that's not as hard a question as it looks. If we, if we ask the question, which states in the region can live comfortably with an American hegemony and which can't, I think they sort themselves out very quickly. That's a great point. The, the one comment I have is, is that I do agree that we can't make uh, you know, the perfect the enemy of the good enough, right? Um, guys like me who are full of idealism, um, and realism too, but you know, full of ideals, and I want peace to be characterized by the presence of order and justice, damn it, and if I don't, let's get it, that kind of thing. Guys like me have to recognize that, at least in most cases, uh, while order with justice is to be preferred, um, order without justice is probably better than anarchy. And there might be exceptions to that, but that might be a general rule worth thinking about before we go in 
um, seeking justice and end up neither with justice nor order, um, which could be problematic as well, right? I would also say, you know, keep your eye on Iraq. There, there's a glimmer of hope for Iraq. I, I think that it, there's more to work with there. There's a, a government that seems to be an improvement over the past government, not only has, um, Saddam Hussein, but um, the Maliki government. And um, they're not as sectarian there as Maliki was. Um, the, the, the Sunnis seem to have... Uh, be welcoming this liberation for the most part. We'll see. I mean, it's going to be uh, a rough, rough road ahead. But uh, many of them are seem to be celebrating uh, the liberation of their city from ISIS. Um, the Kurds are in. Um, you know, they they have established a de facto autonomy, or not autonomy, and in, in sort of a de facto state almost. Um, and it's. Uh, you know, we'll see how the, the smallest minorities, the genocide-targeted minorities, survive. They may not survive there. But um, the, the, it is a, a wealthy country, um, even despite the fact that ISIS has controlled about a third of it. Its economy has grown. So I, I think that, uh, you know, that's something to work with and to build on. And, and, and I think that the minorities could survive if the U.S. military presence is maintained, and we don't see the encroachment of Iran and the Sunni response to that through al-Qaeda. So I'm going to take actually one last question here, the gentleman with the, right there. Uh, Vincent LaFaso, freelance writer. Um, on Wednesday, the United States military announced the deployment of hundreds of Marines to Syria. And um, just recently, um, they've also announced uh, 2,500 paratroopers to Kuwait to contain ISIS in Iraq and Syria. Uh, my biggest concern would be a direct confrontation between U.S. troops and Iran or Russia proxies, um, free Syrian army um, troops, that, which, you know, can we learn the lessons of Vietnam back in the 70s or something. But um, my question is, what will be the, how important would the deployment of U.S. troops be? And what are the biggest challenges we can overcome to be a broker for peace, um, especially to the innocent civilians who've been losing their lives every day from bombs and drones? Um, how can we help in that? Thank you. Respond to the the troop, the presence of troops so, that are there. So the the troops are. This is a prelude to the to the campaign in Raqqa, and the troops are interposing themselves between the Turks and the and and the Kurds. Uh, the the Obama administration's strategy, which the Trump administration has inherited, um, calls for using the Kurds to take Raqqa, but they recognize that you can't hold. Uh, that, that that will alienate the uh, Sunni Arab population of Raqqa if you have Kurds come in and take it. So they have created underneath the Kurdish uh, uh, umbrella uh, some uh, uh, Syrian Arab forces, uh, uh, Sunni forces um, that will take the um, that will take the uh, the, the city. Um, the problem here uh, is that it's alienating the Turks uh, because the Turks believe I, I think correctly 
that the that the Syrian Kurds with whom we're working are the Syrian extension of the PKK. So we're giving strategic depth to the Kurds who want uh, who want to uh, uh, separatism in um, in Turkey. So there's a debate going on in our government between those who who want us to find a way to uh, mollify the uh, the Turks. And those that have other ideas, like uh, aligning with the Russians and the um, uh, and the Iranians on the uh, on the ground, um, when this debate is going to be sorted out, I don't know, and then how it's going to unfold over time, I don't know, because we just we find ourselves mediating between these different um, different groups. That's why I've been putting the emphasis on the larger strategic idea. I don't think any of the other questions that we have, humanitarian, ethnic, ethnic groups, and so on, can be possibly adjudicated if we don't have the larger strategic concept for the region first. Well, you know, that also goes back to, um, you know, having those Marines and the uh, Army Raiders that are um, the Army Rangers, Marine Raiders, I guess it is, um, uh, trying to keep the peace between um, the Turks and the Kurds is an example of why it's it's uh, a false analysis to say that, um, you know, that Trump is going to let them all kill each other. That's That's definitely not happening. That's, I think, you know, I don't know how long this we could be a referee like that, but um, at least at this critical critical moment when we're about to uh, lead this, or, or not lead, but participate in this attack on Raqqa and, and wipe out ISIS is, uh, is, is important. I just to emphasize Mike's point that, yeah, you need the strategic plan in place, especially if you're sending troops in harm's way. Um, I've never met a service member yet who refuses to have their lives spent, but I've met many who are, who are offended at their being wasted. Um, and if you don't have the strategy in place, uh, tend toward the one rather than the other. I'll just add to General Mattis um, made the argument uh, before he became the, the nominee for the Secretary of Defense that this idea that we've just, for the first time in the history of humanity that we've come into, we've come to a problem that cannot be solved is just not true. That um, it will be hard, it'll be complicated, but we could we could take a we could take a really hard problem and and come up with a solution that's better, um, that is better for American security and also um, handles the moral and ethical questions um, the best we can, if imperfectly. And with that, would you please join me in thanking our panelists? Thank you. Thank you.